Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. All right. It's all a great bumper sticker over the weekend. If you elect a clown, you can expect a circus. And boy, oh boy, it's a circus that we've got. Hey, hey, hey. Hello, everybody. Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show. Yes, we are live from Washington, D.C. On this Monday, January 28th. Here we go. That's first month of the, of the new year almost over uh, with a great big pile of news that we've got to talk about. Thanks to Peter Ogburn for filling in on Friday. And Friday, what a news day it was with the arrest of Roger Stone early in the morning down in Miami. And then the president waving the white flag of surrender Friday afternoon at the White House, uh, agreeing to reopen the government agreeing to sign the same deal that he had first accepted and then rejected back in December, putting the country into 35 days of a government shutdown, which accomplished absolutely nothing except making President Trump feel good and pretending to be a big bully, a big deal maker, a big power broker, when in fact he's a total fraud. And he proved that Friday. And ever since then, more to talk about with all of that. Plus, oh, um, <laughs> yes, President claiming voter fraud in Texas. And it turned out he was wrong about that, too. Jared Kushner not being able to get a security clearance at the White House until authorities there overruled the FBI. It goes on and on and on. So much you're going to want to talk about. And Kamala Harris officially in uh, as a 2020 presidential candidate. So send us your comments on Twitter. Get ready. Lots to talk about. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. And, of course, we'll dive right in. But first. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, so the Super Bowl is coming up this weekend, Bill. One team that will not be in the Super Bowl is the Indianapolis Colts. But there was some news about the Indianapolis Colts over the weekend. They re-signed their kicker. He's a man by the name of Adam Vinatieri. Uh-huh. He signed on for a one-year contract. Just one year. That's all they, they wanted him for, which is more than they probably deserve because Adam Vinatieri is 46 years old. No kidding. he is for Yeah, he's a kicker, let's be clear. Yeah, so he's yeah. not a guy that's out there 
putting his body on the line as much as other players. But that's not to discount how great of a kicker he is. He is one of the greatest great. kickers Those in the history. Points. Those points add up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he is one of the most reliable and dependable huh. kickers that the NFL has ever seen. So the Indianapolis Colts trying to make sure that next year they are not left out of the Super Bowl by signing him uh, again. One-year contract. Good for him. Yeah. You know, there's a future for people my age in football. Yeah, exactly. Get out there, Bill. What are you What are you, What are you, what are you waiting for? Hey, did you play Powerball over the weekend? You know what? I didn't. I, oh, I you can't win if you late. don't play. I know, I know. Well, that yeah. is a, a truck driver in New York actually won the second largest. I can't believe that we were already at the second largest Powerball jackpot in New York lottery history. He won 298.3 million dollars. Good for da- him. David Johnson is 56 years old. He immediately spoke to the press and he said, "Quote, I'm not going back to work. I'm quitting right away." <laughs> My Take ki- this job and <laughs> shove it. That is my kind of lottery winner. That's what I want to hear. Uh, me too. Yeah, he said he was so excited. He was so happy. Uh, he took the cash option, so he's going to be taking home more than $114 million after the withholdings are filed, and uh, he is going to be a very, very rich man. And while we talked about sports in that first story, another big quick sports story, the Tampa Bay Rays of the uh, Major League Baseball, they made an announcement over the weekend. They are going to get get rid of, do away with, all cash purchases at their stadium. They're saying that there are now apps you can pay for, you've got credit cards you can pay for, and if that's not enough, you can use... Uh, like gift cards, gift cards for the stadium. That's the only way that they will allow you to buy beer, food, concessions, anything. It will all be cashless. Cash is on its way out. Truly. This is the Bill Press Show. Donald Trump waves the white flag of surrender and the government reopens. Ah, well, at least for three weeks. What do you say, everybody? Great to see you today. It's a Monday, Monday, January 28th. This is the Bill Press Show. Back together again. Uh, shout out to uh, our good friend Peter Ogburn for filling in on Friday. Uh, nothing happened Friday. You yeah, know. we I had mean, a pretty... I, I always pick the days when there's no news to uh, to take a day off, right? So, well, you know, I, look, yeah. I just I just want to say uh, it's always an honor to host uh, when you're away. <laughs> And I boldly predicted on Friday that the government shutdown would last for several more weeks, <laughs> proving that I know absolutely nothing. Well, <laughs> as you remember, that my last show before Christmas, I announced that the shutdown was not going to happen. Yeah. There would be no shutdown. It was all resolved. And at that mo- I must say, at that moment, yeah. it was. Yeah. And Peter, I'm sure Friday, at, at your moment, you could all the signs were the government <laughs> shutdown was going to last forever. Right? Fake news, everybody. No, no, no. In this news cycle, <laughs> yeah. you cannot. We sh- haven't we learned that yet? In, you would think you know, <laughs> two years, right? <laughs> At any rate, so good to see you. As we reach out to you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington D.C., with all the news of the day, all the news of the weekend, and it just kept rolling on and on and on. This is a total different world today uh, than we were than than it was last week 
with all kinds of new complications, implications, consequences, and still an unpredictable future. I think about all of that as we uh, look forward to hearing your comments on the news of the day on Twitter, at BP Show, and send us your comments, whether you are uh, watching on television on Free Speech TV, listening to us on the radio out in Indiana statewide on Indiana Talks, or in the Chicago, in the greater Chicago area on WCPT, the great progressive voice of Chicago, and or whether you are following us online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, anywhere on the planet. Uh, yes, indeed, hard to say where to start, but let's start with that shutdown. It, what happened, where for 30, think about it, for 35 days, Donald Trump said, I want my wall, I demand my wall, I demand $5.7 billion for my wall. I will not move. I will not budge. I will keep government employees without a paycheck. I will keep the government shut down until I get every dollar of the $5.7 billion I want. And there will be, and the only way out is if you don't give it to me, I will uh, declare, make an emergency declaration. Uh, to build this wall using money that I'll steal from somewhere else. That was Donald Trump every day for 35 days. And, of course, the result was extreme hardship, dislocation on the part of 800,000 federal employees who were either furloughed or forced to work, either way, without a paycheck, forced into the indignities of having to get a loan, uh, tap their friends or family for money, going to food banks, being late on their payments, having to pay late fees for late payments, uh, picking up extra jobs, walking dogs, changing diapers, driving Uber or whatever, treated like indentured servants. He didn't give a damn. He said, they're probably all Democrats anyway. You know, Wilbur Ross said, oh, I don't understand why they just can't go to a bank and get a loan like I can. Right. Uh, And so for 35 days, all of that hardship. And then what happened? On Friday, Donald Trump agreed to sign the very same deal that was offered to him by Republicans and Democrats in December, 35 days before, the very same deal, which is we'll give you, we will reopen the government, keep the government open, and we'll give you some money for border security, but not one dime for the wall. Not one dime for the wall. And Donald Trump signed that deal on Friday afternoon, the very same deal he first accepted and then rejected, I repeat that, last December. So what did Donald Trump accomplish in 35 days? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Why did those federal employees suffer for 35 days? go without a paycheck, not even be able to go to their job and do the work that they're really committed to doing because they're great Americans. What did he accomplish? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I think the only thing the shutdown accomplished was it exposes Donald Trump for who he really is. First of all, not some great deal maker. Again, he accomplished nothing. A total flim-flam artist who just insults people, threatens people, talks tough, and then folds. 
I thought the New York Daily News said it best. The New York Daily News, the big headline Saturday morning was a picture of Orange Man and the great big words at the bottom, Cave Man. <laughs> cave Man. Totally caved in. And might I point out, that's the second time in that last week that he caved in. In the middle of the week, first he caved in to Nancy Pelosi and said, okay, you win, I lose. I can't give my State of the Union speech. I'll wait until the government's reopened. And then Friday, he caved in and said, okay, didn't use these words, you win, I lose, we'll reopen the government. And then, then, to, to just show how petty and how small-minded he is, he agreed to open the government for three weeks only. Only three weeks. And then we may be back in the soup all over again. So here he is Friday afternoon about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, making the announcement from the Rose Garden. I am very proud to announce today that we have reached a deal to end the shutdown and reopen the federal government. Uh, on the three weeks, we'll come back to that in just a second. But, of course, uh, Nancy Pelosi said, um, without crowing, without saying, we won, he lost. No, she just said uh, how, how important it was for the Democrats <coughs> to hang together on this. I'm grateful for the unity in our caucus. We always say our diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength, and the unity proved that diversity, that uni unity among the diverse group of Democrats proved their strength in this case. Again, uh, and, and leader Chuck Schumer in the Senate said, well, I hope we all learn a lesson here, right? Shutdowns, threats, don't work. Today, the president will sign the bill to reopen the government along the outlines of what we have proposed. And hopefully, it means a lesson learned for the White House and for many of our Republican colleagues. Let's hope. But do you think it did? Well, now let's go back to the Rose Garden and Donald Trump saying, all right, yeah, we're reopening the government, but only for three weeks, and then here's what's going to happen. If we don't get a fair deal from Congress, the government will either shut down on February 15th again, or I will use the powers afforded to me under the laws and the Constitution of the United States to address this emergency. In other words, he didn't learn a damn thing. He is saying the same thing about February 15 that he said for 35 days, I'm going to get my wall or I'm going to shut down the government again. Imagine that he would, after that debacle that he would dare shut down the government again, that if you can believe anything he says anymore, and I don't think anybody can, I mean, to just discount anything he says, but if you can believe anything he says, he says he's willing to shut down the government yet again after getting his clock clean for the last 35 days or uh, declare an emergency declaration, which, again, he promised to do over and over again during the 35 days. So he didn't learn a damn thing. There's a very interesting thing going on right now that sort of flips our whole idea of both parties on its head, right? Because I think Democrats, they would like to make the point that government works for you, right? That is sort of that that is sort of at the very core of the Democratic Party. And when the government's not working for you, whether it's through a shutdown or whatever uh, means that Donald Trump is using, Democrats get nervous. 
and that usually leads to them caving on some sort of <laughs> deal or right. some sort of watered-down yeah. uh, solution. They didn't do it this time. Nope. They held nope. firm. On the other hand, Republicans are fine to take the heat and look bad and deal with the, the uh, publicity problem as long as they get what they want. Well, this time around, they, they took the heat, they got a publicity problem, and they got absolutely nothing. No. Absolutely no. nothing. What they got was stabbed in the back by their president. Yeah. And what I wait to see is, or I want to wait and see is, let's go to February 15 with no money for Donald Trump's wall. Will they stand by him again? Are they, we know they're not very smart, but are they that dumb? Are they that idiotic to stand by Donald Trump again on February 15th? Well, that's a tough bet. That is a tough <laughs> bet. So just one final word there on that, and, and that is everybody's been asking, so what happened? Well, it's pretty clear what happened. There were three factors particularly. I mean, first of all, it kept building for 35 days. The poll numbers were bad. Um, the public pressure was building. But on Friday, <coughs> pardon me, three things happened. Number one, they had two votes Thursday afternoon, of course. Uh, th this led to the decision on Friday. They had two votes in the Senate, one on the president's plan, one on the Democratic plan. The president's plan was give me everything, give me everything, money for the wall and temporary protection for the dreamers. And the Democratic plan was no conditions, reopen the government, then we'll talk border security. Clean bill. Reopen the government, then we'll talk border security. No money for the wall, of course. The Democratic plan in the Republican-controlled Senate got more votes than Donald Trump got. Can I repeat? The Democrats, the Democratic plan in the Republican Senate, controlled by Mitch McConnell, got more votes than Donald Trump's plan got in the Republican-controlled Senate. That was a little sign. Second thing that happened is, we've learned, Mitch McConnell was on the phone twice Thursday afternoon with Donald Trump and said, uh, yeah, you think it's bad now? He said, tomorrow, if this vote, if we'd voted again, the Democratic plan would get 70 votes. Basically, he said, hey, Trumper, you lost, baby. This is bad. Seven, he predicted 70 votes in the Senate if they had one more vote. And then the third thing that happened is, you know, I'm not taking full credit for this, but I said the way to end this strike was for the air traffic controllers to do a one-day sick out nationwide. Well, they didn't have to do that. <laughs> you didn't know how right you were. I didn't know how right I was. All it took was, and then we said, somebody else said, I forget what one of our guests said, it could just be one major airport. Yeah. O'Hare, yeah. Atlanta. I think it was our Sarah Nelson, Sir, yeah, head Sarah of the flight attendant, yeah, said I think that. that's right. Just one major right. airport. Guess what? It took one. Actually, it took the one third world airport we have in this country, LaGuardia, <laughs> which is the worst of the airports. But it's New York City. Yeah. And it's terrible the, airport, big city. And it's the commuter lines, commuter between Washington and D.C. It's a, it's a very important connection. Uh, so LaGuardia basically canceled all flights for about an hour on Thursday. And then, or maybe it was Friday, but by that time, the White House just said, oh, my God. We gotta get. We gotta end this thing. We gotta get out of it somehow. And so, yeah, yes, Donald Trump totally caved. There is no other way to spin it. No other way to spin it. 
By the way, totally caved. He got absolutely nothing. Thirty-five days was nothing but a monument to his ego. Donald Trump's. We've talked about this a million times. (laughs) Donald Trump's true skill is being able to spin his way out of a problem. If it's something that he screwed up, and very obviously that he screwed it up, he's able to save face. He's able to do it, like it or not. This was one of the biggest losses he's taken on a public stage certainly as president but yeah. maybe ever because he's always able to put some shine on the situation and make yeah. it look better than it is always able to fake it out yeah know, and and he just he just lost right. he just lost it by the way you hit on something <laughs> that the that i just hadn't thought about when we talked about all the shutdown of the flights and all that maybe if the super bowl gets disrupted we're going to lose our minds collectively as a nation but what it really what really is at the heart of it is these politicians wanted to get out of town yeah these and, politicians wanted to get out of town and they can't get out of town if little gordy is not functioning no, no, no. I mean, you go to national airport here on a thursday afternoon and take that little shuttle which i've done right it's like being in the house caucus yeah yeah, it's filled with House members going to, to going to New York. There's so many members up there. Um, so, by the way, there was one other factor, I'm convinced, that led Donald Trump to uh, make that announcement Friday afternoon, and that is what happened Friday morning early in Miami. Roger Stone. We knew they were going to get him eventually. Finally, FBI moved in on his home at 6 a.m. under the cover of darkness in Miami, uh, a little bit later that morning, Roger Stone himself, Roger Stone, who has been, by the way, so he's been Donald Trump's chief political advisor for some 40 years. The two of them are like blood brothers, right? He's a total snake, total amoral person, a total dirty trickster, and that's why Donald Trump likes him. Uh, and we knew that he was right in the middle and bragged about, he bragged about going to see Julian Assange, bragged, then maybe he did or maybe he didn't, but he bragged about going bragged about being the contact with Julian Assange and helping bring down the DNC, uh, uh, Hillary, the Hillary campaign, at least causing a lot of problems there, and John Podesta. He's the one who said, predicted John Podesta is going to be in hot water two or three days from now because he knew what Julian Assange and Wiki, uh, WikiLeaks was going he's so He's so corrupt. He's so in the middle of this. It took Robert Mueller a little while to get around, but finally they got him Friday morning on seven counts of witness tampering, obstruction of justice, lying to Congress. Uh, later that morning, Roger Stone appeared at the federal courthouse, walked outside full of beans, uh, met with, um, well, I wouldn't say he's the most popular person in Miami. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, look, we give Florida a lot of grief on this yeah, show. But, Good for yeah, Florida. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, Roger Stone addressing the crowd and the reporters saying he's, he's going to be, he's going to be, it's not going to work. He's going to be vindicated. I look forward to being fully and completely vindicated. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's going to go and he's going to plead not guilty, not guilty. I will plead not guilty to these charges. I will defeat them in court. Yeah. Uh, let me say again. Anybody who has Richard Nixon's uh, bust tattooed between his shoulder blades is guilty. All right. I mean, of anything. Charging anything, he's guilty. That's that's my take on Roger I mean, th- think I mean, about, think the, about that. the legacy of that's Richard your Nixon. your hero. Did you see him when he walked out of the courthouse and he did the famous Nixon Oh, yeah, Nixon he did the pose. Nixon thing. Right, yeah. No, he is the link from the corrupt Richard Nixon to the corrupt Donald Trump. And I hope. 
Donald Trump's presidency ends the same way. That would be perfect. That would that would make the ideal movie, right? Pretty nice. Yeah, absolutely. That would be pretty nice. Now get this. So again, decades these two have been hanging out together, right? He and then at the beginning of this campaign, Roger Stone and Donald Trump had some little pissing contest. I don't know. They got in some argument. And so Rogers don't officially left the campaign, but he still talked to Donald Trump every day. So that, so reporters see press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you have to catch her, by the way, like when she's taking her laundry to the cleaners, right, because they don't do any briefings anymore. So they caught her on the front lawn. What, is, what, do you, what, is the, what does this mean about the Trump White House, Sarah? This has nothing to do with the president, has nothing ah! to do with the White House. What? Well, I'm shocked that oh. she would say that. Oh, Nothing to do with the president. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> read. Well, let's let we'll let Dan Abrams say. I mean, what Roger Stone did was not disconnected from the Trump campaign. Trump campaign is mentioned twenty-eight times in this indictment. So there's no way to talk about this indictment and ignore the reality that the Trump campaign is mentioned numerous times here. And when talking about who ordered him, who directed him, Mueller has an answer to that question. Yeah. And by the way, the juiciest element of the Mueller indictment is that an individual, unnamed, an individual in the Trump campaign instructed a senior campaign official to contact Roger Stone and find out ahead of time, what else WikiLeaks had? Who is this individual who instructed a senior campaign official, whoever that might be, that could have been Steve Bannon, could have been Paul Manafort, could have been Rick Gates, but whoever it was who contacted Roger Stone, they were instructed to do so by an unnamed individual. And this was in the Trump campaign. Who do you think, who do you think gave that order? I know who gave that order. I'll bet you. I'd be willing to bet it was Donald Trump himself. Uh, at any rate, uh, on tomorrow, Roger Stone will be indicted here in a federal courtroom in um, Washington, D.C. Uh, and um, so one more. Add him up. Add him up. I forget how many this is now that uh, that uh, Robert Mueller has been able to snag uh, of the uh, of the Trump operation. Um, now. One little element about the Roger Stone thing I wanted to touch on is we know it was a pretty um, dramatic scene at Roger's house because CNN was there. CNN filmed it. Um, This is amazing. Donald Trump tweeted out, who tipped off CNN? You know, like, oh, the FBI, there it is. This proves this whole conspiracy thing. Um, I happened to have lunch yesterday with the uh, man at CNN who engineered this whole thing. I want to tell no you the whole story. Kidding. Oh, so I well. said, how did, you, how did you happen to be there? And he said, you know what? We got lucky. First of all, they have, I didn't realize it, they have people embedded watching the special counsel's office to see if there's any activity going on there and watching the grand jury. And they noticed there was a lot of action around the grand jury on Thursday, Wednesday and Thursday. And then they noticed one of Robert Mueller's attorneys leaving the office dragging two big suitcases of materials. Uh, and they, so they figure out um, something's going on. 
some, they figure out something's going on, something's about to come down. Who could it be? Well, everybody, they, they, they're not the only ones who thought uh, the next person up is probably Roger Stone. Yeah, we've been saying that for weeks well, now. Everybody. So he's in Miami. So they sent a producer from Washington, said, get your ass down to Miami. <laughs> uh, and he goes, and so he's in Miami. He's got a crew. And he says, and then they also know this, that by, by rules or whatever, by law, the FBI, if they're going to go in uh, and ram, break down the door, they can't do that before 5 o'clock in the morning. If they're going to go and knock on the door, there's a word for, I forget what the phrase is, but if they're going to knock on the door, they can't go before 6 a.m. in the morning. So, um, well, ahead of myself. Anyhow, the producer says, so I'm going to take my crew and I'm going to hang out at the federal courthouse. And this, this guy I had lunch with, I can't give you his name, uh, from Washington says, no, don't go to the courthouse. Go to his house because my guess is they're going to get him at his house. It was purely instinct, purely wow. a guess. And so they knew, again, that for that knock on the door, it would be 6 o'clock in the morning. CNN crew shows up at 5 o'clock in the morning. And 6 o'clock, bingo. They got it. Pedro, they got it. That's it was, amazing. It was pure, good, shoe leather reporting. They got it. Good that's remarkable, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's hustle. You got to do it. A great story. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of good reporting and good instincts and lucky guess and boom. And they got it. Uh, and uh, there's Roger Stone comes to the door in his pajamas and his slippers and boom, nabbed him. Yeah. You know, that conspiracy theory spread like wildfire on Friday. Oh, I know. That, oh, that of course. Robert of course. Mueller tipped off CNN yeah, that this yeah. was coming, right? And you saw people all <laughs> over the, the place. Or the FBI did. Or right? the FBI, yeah. yeah but yeah. were making these, these right, uh, right. claims. With, with, but it's, it's nice to know that there were people out there pushing back against it. So. Yeah. Right. All right. Uh, I want to mention one other thing. I want to give a shout out to our good friend Joe Cirincione uh, from uh, the Plowshares Fund because he was very much part of this. But uh, Thursday, I attended a very important news conference. Didn't get a lot of coverage. Didn't get as much as it should. Got some, but not as much as it should. A news conference down at um, uh, at the press club where former Governor Jerry Brown, my good friend, and former Defense Secretary Bill Perry uh, gave the latest report on the doomsday clock, and they oh, right. unveiled it. And the doomsday clock, they show which this is, how close we are, get this, to nuclear annihilation. The doomsday clock they set at two minutes to midnight. This is as close as that clock has been in our history, meaning we are, we are that close to... The whole a new nuclear arms race and the whole nuclear proliferation getting out of control and either by accident, by blunder, or by deliberate use of a nuclear weapon triggering a nuclear war that could destroy this planet and destroy civilization. And the point that Governor Brown and Secretary Perry and Joe Cirincione has made so many times on our show uh, is – what the hell are we doing, and why aren't people more concerned about this, and why aren't people talking about it, and why isn't the Congress doing anything about it as the Trump administration, in effect, is launching us into a new nuclear arms race, particularly to build tactical weapons, which Russia is doing at the same time. In the meantime, February 2nd is the date 
when the INF Treaty signed in 1987 will expire and Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo says uh, that they're, they're ready to abandon that treaty again and move on to, to, to uh, rebuild intermediate nuclear weapons, to build, start building again intermediate nuclear weapons. Uh, very, very dangerous situation, very troubling, very alarming, and so- certainly an issue that we ought to be paying a lot more about. Doomsday clock. Check it out. Two minutes to midnight. And how often do you hear? I think every candidate in 2020, this is a point Governor Brown made, every candidate running for president in 2020 has got to be talking about this issue. And if not, they don't deserve our support. Uh, anyhow, let's take a quick break. Boy, we just started, man. There's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about yet. Uh, we'll get right into it when we come back. Our first guest, Alex Ward, joins us from Vox. I've been covering uh, international national security issues. We'll talk Venezuela. We'll talk some more Roger Stone with Alex Ward. Quick break, and we'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. On a Monday, Monday, January 28th, welcome to the program, folks, or welcome back. The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. Booming out to you uh, nationwide from our studio right here on Capitol Hill. Brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters. Good men and women of the Firefighters Union under President Harold Schaitberger. We count on them. They never let us down on the front lines protecting American families every day. You see them rolling by. Give them a good wave and thank them for their great work and thank them for the support of the program. Their website is iaff.org. Check it out. Join me in welcoming to the studio Alex Ward from Vox, a national security reporter with lots of lots on his plate today. It's good to see you, Alex. Thanks good for coming back. in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, before we uh, dive into these new issues, uh, Peter's got some comments on what we've been talking about. Yes, indeed. We're on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. A couple of comments from there. Let's start with Tom, who says, in the event of another Trump shutdown, the TSA and the air traffic controllers should feel emboldened to sick out on the very first day. Uh, good lear- point. They learned their power on well, Friday. I think that's one lesson we learned, right? Sure, absolutely. Is, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They've got they've got a lot one more One day power. would do it. One day. <laughs> One day in one major airport would do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Mike says Roger Stone has officially become part of Trump's gang that cannot lie straight. Just add him in with Rudy, Roger, Manafort, etc. all of them. By the way, Adam Schiff made that point over the weekend that if they did nothing wrong, why why have why so many of them lied about it? Constantly lying. Yeah. Constantly yeah. lying. Uh, that's from Twitter, where we're at BP Show. Remember, again, we are on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And make sure you're subscribed there. We're just a couple of subscribers away from another big milestone. So uh, mm. youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show and hit subscribe. Uh, let's just start with Diane. Diane says, I agree. Trump, again, showed his incompetence through the shutdown. He also may face the wrath of the people if he shuts it down again. In any case, how many of those 800,000 plus will vote for Trump again? Good point. If you have a comment on any topic at any time, find us on Twitter at BP Show or again on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember to subscribe. One little footnote on the uh, shutdown talk uh, in the last half hour is that um, after the 35 days of the shutdown, uh, Donald Trump totally caving in Friday afternoon. The Republican National Committee had a big meeting this weekend, uh, and they voted unanimously to support Donald Trump for president in 2020. 
So the RNC is officially on board. They're in. They're in. Unanimously. They're in. All right. I mean, so. (laughs) Game time o'clock. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, right. Boy, yeah. They learned a big lesson, too, didn't they, right? (laughs) So, Alex, oh, gosh, where do we start? Let's start just because he's such a creep with Roger Stone uh, before we get into Venezuela and other stuff. I mean, no surprise that they were going to—we knew they were going to get him, right? It was always Serious charges, or he says this is just nothing, he didn't do anything wrong, right? Of course, they always say that. Well, actually, it's it's. I was surprised that it wasn't necessarily serious enough in the sense that, right, it was obstruction. I mean, the charges are obstruction, witness tampering, lying to Congress. We kind of expected that to happen, right? Roger Stone has a pretty uh, troubled relationship with the truth. And so right. when asked about the WikiLeaks stuff, it was probably no surprise, especially based on emails that we'd seen beforehand, that he was going to lie about it. The question is... Did, what did he actually really do with WikiLeaks? Is he actually connected? The Mueller indictment didn't necessarily answer that question. Mm-hmm. So this could be the first part in a larger set of indictments against Roger Stone. It could be the only w- things they could find, right? It's possible that the Mueller investigation searched deeply and this is all they have. So we, we have to wait and see. Uh, but I do remember hearing some reporters, you know, talking to friends and also reporting on this and, and seeing the Twitter response it was surprisingly full of disappointment, right? They kind of expected greater yeah, things from Roger, yeah. uh, well, from this. Well, what about this tease that an individual unnamed mm-hmm. in the Trump campaign instructed a senior campaign official to contact Roger and say, what do you got, basically? Right. Got? So that that is the most interesting part of the indictment in terms of the WikiLeaks-Russia-Trump connection, right, is – who clearly someone higher up knew about Stone and WikiLeaks. Stone may have said he knew something. So there was some sort of... He was talking to the media well, at the right. time about bragging almost about, yeah. Right. So one thing I would... contacts. Right. So one thing I, I would want to know personally is, did the Trump campaign take him very seriously, right, when he said those things? Were they like, all right, Roger, you know, okay, cool, you're, you're in touch with Assange. This seems to imply, we don't know, but it seems to imply that the Trump, as someone higher up in the Trump campaign, did take Stone seriously. And so expecting maybe a new tranche of emails to come out, said, hey, Roger, what you got? What do we know? So that, to me, is the, for sure the next thing that Mueller is looking into. And one of the reasons they may have done that dramatic arrest on Friday is to make sure that they could get in there before Roger may have destroyed evidence, could have, you know, I don't buy the flee the country bit, but maybe could have shredded a couple of documents. And so I think this is the first part in a larger story. Could that unnamed individual who instructed a senior campaign official to contact Roger Stone, could that unnamed individual be Donald Trump? Uh, I guess it could be, uh, but they did name him. It's the Trump campaign. Right. They did name Trump, if I recall correctly, <laughs> by name in the document. And so to say then a senior Trump administration official, uh, a Trump campaign official, excuse me, would seem out of place for the way Mueller's been doing this. I'm going to guess it's not, but uh, I mean, I, I don't, I can't, I can't say. Uh, could have been a Paul Manafort. Could have been a Paul Manafort. Could have been a Jared Kushner. Could have been a right or someone we haven't thought of. Right, uh, someone who knows his way around a federal courthouse. Uh, former um, U.S. Attorney Chris Christie sure uh, spoke about this yesterday. Uh, he was on Meet the Press, I believe. Or no, this week, right? Um, Chris Christie uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos. What was his assessment of how much trouble Roger Stone could be in? Here's Chris Christie. 
I think if he decides to go to trial, um, he's in very, very grave danger. Everyone is presumed innocent, George, and so is he. But the indictment, I think, is a pretty damning indictment. Yeah, uh, which sort of, of course, contradicts what we heard from Roger Stone, right? That, uh, in fact, right. Roger Stone, but Peter, how thin were the charges against Roger Stone? Uh, in view of the fact that I expect to be acquitted and vindicated uh, and that my attorneys, including Bruce Rogow, one of the very best attorneys in the country, Grant Smith, uh, Rob Bouchelle and Tara Campion, believe that this uh, indictment is thin as piss on a rock. There you go. <laughs> Pretty thin. I give I give Roger some credit, man. That's that's some good stuff. Uh, <laughs> so, look, I mean, let, let's kind of go back to what we know. Right. We do know that he had. DM'd Guccifer 2.0, which uh, was at the time considered just a singular rogue hacker. We now know it was a Russian intelligence operative. We do know that he, you know, talked to WikiLeaks or, you know, DM'd with WikiLeaks. We do know that he tried to uh, intimidate Randy Credico for supposedly being his inter- intermediary. And so... Randy Credico is yeah. an interesting figure. Yeah. I just want to stop yeah, this. Yeah, so sure. he's a talk show host, right? Yes. Who, who that Roger claims was his intermediary. He mm-hmm. says he wasn't, and then Roger turned on him. This is a whole right. complicated so, story in, a, in and of itself. Right. So so they've been, so Stone and Credico have been friends for a bit. Basically, when information came out about, hey, it looks like Roger's been talking to WikiLeaks, to Guccifer 2.0, he can went, oh, no, it's not me. Credico is the guy who's been talking. He's been uh, telling me, yeah. right? So then when Credico gets subpoenaed by the Mueller investigation, he goes in and, and, and ahead of time, if I'm recalling correctly, Stone's like, hey, stick to the plan, right? Lie about it, basically. I mean, there was some weird email that was like, you know, stick to the plan, yeah. Richard Nixon. <laughs> it was, yeah, it yeah, was an odd right. kind yeah, of email. Yeah. Uh, and then later, you know, when Credico's like, I'm not going to turn or I'm not going to lie here. It's like, you're a stoolie, you're a whatever. So it's this weird situation where you're taking Stone's word over Credico's <laughs> or vice versa, however you feel. But we do know that Stone did talk directly to these, you know, kind of cut to these cutouts. So it's very, I I would agree with Christy here. I think Stone has a bit of a problem in that if he told the House Intelligence Committee that he did not directly contact these these individuals or these people, then he seems to be in trouble because we have those that information. All right. And your take on Sarah Huckabee Sanders statement that this has... Nothing to do with the president and nothing to do with the White House. Here she is, right? This has nothing to do with the president, has nothing to do with the White House. Right. I mean, I guess it has nothing to do with the White House in the sense that this didn't happen since he was in office. You, I guess you could make you could buy that spin. Uh, to say it has nothing to do with the president is odd because it was the president's campaign. Uh, and if it's true that a senior Trump, uh, excuse me, a campaign official asked Stone about WikiLeaks, well, now we're moving higher up the chain. Right now, it looks like there's something happening. We can't say I mean, for sure, but it looks that way. I, I just find it. I think it's laugh out loud funny. Sure. That has nothing to do. I mean, he's Donald Trump. He's he's Donald Trump, the candidate. Donald yeah. Trump, you know, the president. He's still Donald Trump. It's just uh, it, it's, it's just insane. Uh, what does this tell you about the Mueller investigation? Um, some people speculated that this is the final chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, the last guy right. they're going to get, and that's the next thing. He's just going to write his report and wrap it up. Of course, they've been saying that for a year, right? Sure. Uh, but yeah. is, is it true this time, or is this just that he's, that he's still in full gear? Yeah, anyone that says they know what Mueller's up to is lying. I mean, I, the, the, the tea leaves here that, only, that, you know, this is just my opinion here, 
is this is a, a first step in a larger story, especially for Stone. I, it would seem odd to me, to me, that knowing what we know about the text that that Stone sent, the the DMs via Twitter that he you know sent with with these with WikiLeaks, Guccifer, it would seem odd that it, the indictment stops here. It would seem odd that it's just on the obstruction and the witness tampering uh, and, and lying to Congress. Okay, that may be true, right? That may mm-hmm. be just be mm-hmm. it. But it would just seem odd to me that Mueller either doesn't want more information on that or seems to have found all he needed to find. That's also possible. But I would be shocked. I mean, again, there's just so much we still know that hasn't really been dealt with that it just seems like there's more coming. Right. I, I would be I would be surprised if within the couple of months that people are predicting that it's done. But I've... I've been wrong about other things before. So. Alex Ward with us from Vox, Vox.com. Now, Venezuela. Uh, you know, I find this um, complicated, hard to yeah. understand what's going on. I mean, it looks like Donald Trump finally found a strong man he doesn't like. Uh, you know, Erdogan in Turkey and um, whoever it is in Putin, Hungary. Putin in Russia. Putin in <laughs> Russia, right, yeah. But this Latin American strong man... Donald Trump now has actually recognized the opposition leader, John Guardi, is it? Guaido. Guaido. Guaido yep. is how you pronounce Guardi. Guaido. <laughs> as the new president, the new leader of Venezuela. Uh, yeah. Can we just do that? I mean, we can. Like, <laughs> right? We can. It's a thing we can do. But it doesn't make him the new leader of Venezuela because we say he is. Right. right? But uh, I guess to, to expand out here, right, we're not the only one saying it. Yeah. I, in a In a... And I'll be generous here. I mean, this is arguably the greatest rollout of a foreign policy initiative of the Trump administration. Whether or not you agree with the policy decision, the way they've done this is they recognized Guaido and we can go into the legality of how we got here uh, or what Guaido's claim is. But basically, we recognize the Guaido who claims to be the interim president of Venezuela. And the parliament did elect him, right? Right. So let's go into this very very briefly. Okay. Well, so... The na- in December 2015, the National Assembly, which is their Venezuela's Congress, voted in the opposition parties against Maduro. Right, Maduro being the leader, the the in, I guess incumbent president. This is this gets complicated, but yeah. point being that the opposition would rotate its leadership about every year. This year it was Guaido, and they he made the case along with opposition leadership that the May 2018 election that Maduro won, and for those who can't see me, a scare quotes. Uh, yeah. Right. Because it was widely seen as illegitimate. So the Venezuelan Constitution, Article 233, says that in the case uh, that there is no legitimate president or in case of mental impairment or whatever it may be, that therefore the president is the head of the National Assembly. Ergo, me, Juan Guaido. Right. Got it. So that's the argument Guaido is making. And we have bought it. We are OK with that. So we recognize him. We no longer recognize the Maduro government. And we seem to have coordinated with a bunch of Latin American countries, with some European countries, with Canada. I mean, we're not the only ones here who are recognizing Guaido. So this have, is an international Have the major effort. countries done so? I know that other countries have. Canada. Canada's one. Brazil is another. Uh, the Lima Group, uh, organization, organization of American States. Uh, there are some countries in Latin America that aren't for it. Mexico and Uruguay, if I'm recalling and correctly. And Putin, meanwhile, has, uh, is supporting Maduro. Of course. Yeah. So, so this is the bigger issue, right? Which is... Uh, and we can talk about the quote-unquote military option, but Venezuela is backed by China, Turkey, and Russia. Those are three countries you don't really want to start a bigger geo- geopolitical struggle with uh, over Venezuela. But Don, well, yes, and in the meantime, the White House has said that the military option, meaning an invasion of Venezuela 
to put our guy in charge, or at least help our guy in charge, with or without the help of the Venezuelan military, right? For now, they're sticking with Maduro, right? Right. That's what the leadership says. Is is the president of the United States really considering, I mean, a military invasion of Venezuela? Uh, how seriously? I don't know. I mean, in, Octo- in August 2017, he floated out there kind of randomly, right? Oh, there might be a military option. This took everyone yeah, by surprise. Right, right. And then recently, if you if you believe Lindsey Graham... Well, at one point, yeah, but, uh, yeah. uh, reportedly, mm-hmm. he asked Mattis to prepare a plan for some military invention, and Mattis said... Yeah, you know, away with that. Yeah. Away with that, right? Yeah. Crazy. Uh, but if you again, if you believe Lindsey Graham, very recently in a conversation that they had, Trump brought it up again, think, saying, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. should we... Again, the supported, uh, I believe, by Axios. Should we, you know, should we consider a military option? Graham goes no, and then Trump's like, "But you want to invade everybody." Um, so it seems that this is still on the president's mind. Now, does a military invasion mean a unilateral American campaign against Maduro? I don't know. Does it mean maybe backing <laughs> a Latin American country to to go after Maduro's regime? That I don't know. Uh, Brazilian generals seem to have already. Uh, ruled ruled that out. Uh, I don't know where Colombia stands on this, but it would. The question then is right. What is the fight like? Yeah. Who, who's doing it? The, uh, as you mentioned, the, the Venezuelan military leadership at least says they're behind Maduro. Uh, but right now, the the rank and file is is seems to, there seem to be some cracks there. So it, we, it remains to be seen. But obviously, they wouldn't be able to withstand a U.S. campaign. So uh, in the meantime, we're putting whatever diplomatic pressure, I guess on Venezuela and and lining up our allies, as many as we can. Mm -hmm. Uh, As Pompeo said the other day at the uh, UN, was it time for everybody to take sides? Yeah, it was kind of a with us or against us kind of statement. And Pompeo also called um, uh, Maduro uh, and his government um, a mafia state. Um, He was at the UN Security Council. Right. The United States is helping to recover a brighter future for Venezuela. We're here to urge all nations to support the democratic aspirations of the Venezuelan people as they try to free themselves from former President Maduro's illegitimate mafia state. But so back to where I started, it is this is a kind of guy. It's hard to, for me to consider having you know any um, allegiance or loyalty or support for a guy like Maduro, yeah. who's a thug, right? Right. But this is the kind of guy that Donald Trump likes, right? I mean, everywhere else in the world. Yeah, so this is one of the mysteries. What, of what's this. different about Maduro? Yeah, this is a mystery I care about deeply. I don't know, right? <laughs> and the the issue is, um, like, I the, the Trump administration's stance towards Venezuela is so odd to me. Like, why Venezuela even matters to Trump, right? Uh, well, it seems to be Pence-driven. It seems to be, uh, you mm. know, Mike, P- Mike Pence seems to be oh, that's the one who cares about this. It's been a conservative cause for a long time to go after, you know, the, the radical leftists in Venezuela, as they would say. Um, you know, John Bolton cares about this deeply now. Uh, yeah, which is the one reason why I support Maduro. <laughs> if Bolton's for him, I'm a, uh, if Bolton's against him, I'm for him. Right? Yeah, I, I, I'll, I shed no tears from Maduro and, and or the strong man that he is. And, and if he goes, you know, no one should be too sad. Um, right, right. Uh, and then it seems that, you know, bring Elliot Abrams on uh, aboard just seems to be there's some sort of unfinished. This is, again, me just thinking out loud. There's some sort of unfinished project here with Venezuela. Now, if you listen to Bolton recently, he said, well, part of the reason we care about this is it's our hemisphere. Right. We we don't want strongmen like that in our hemisphere. OK, that that's an old school view. But 
I, I, I guess what I'm coming down to is nowhere in my mind did Trump, you know, get into office and say, I want to do something about Venezuela. I think this is right. brought up to him. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think this is, again, Pence driven, which is why he's giving <laughs> all those speeches and why he's, he's speaking so passionately about this. I don't know for sure, but it's just I'm sort of reading the tea leaves here. And the other thing, this has to be seen, and Elliot Abrams is a good reminder of that, of the history of the United States in Latin America. Yeah. Which is not a very proud history, as far as I'm. I mean, you go back. We have always, not always, but we have so often, for some reason, identified people that we considered who were too far to the left uh, in Latin America, right. and then um, determined it was our mission to overthrow them and replace somebody that we like. Going back to Allende in Chile or sure. Sandino in Nicaragua before that. I mean, it goes on and on. Um, yeah. And uh, and this is. Could be one other case of that. Again, not that any of us are going to shed any tears for Maduro, who's right. a bad guy, he's a thug. But yeah. um, uh, the, the idea that we would intervene again in uh, Latin America is sort of a little troubling. Uh, before we uh, let you go, I do want to ask you because you you mentioned um, that your that my comments about the nuclear threat, yeah. the nuclear disarmament, yeah. and uh, the, the doomsday clock at the mm-hmm. end of the uh, the last half hour. Something you've been reporting on too. So I, I do have to say, of all the reporters, when I ever said um, the media doesn't pay any attention to this, mm-hmm. um, you do. Yes. Right. And so, how do you? You know, one one point that Jerry Brown made at this news conference was that uh, the media pays more attention to a Trump tweet than to the fact that we are on the brink, right, <laughs> of a new nuclear arms race. Why? What? That I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is. It's slower moving, mm-hmm. right? It's it's also so catastrophic. It's kind of hard okay. to want to talk about it. Um, but but let me kind of paint a picture here. So I did a, a lot of reporting last year on the actual threat of we all die in a nuclear hellfire. Uh, and it turns out that it, that it is still very, 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 very small. That's the good news. The bad news is it's not 0%, right? And the reason it's not 0% is because U.S. and North Korea is still a possible conflagration. U.S. and Russia are now really at odds uh, with a missile race, with a space race, with hi- fighting each other with hypersonics or trying to figure this out. And we're, we're within a week, no, five days right. of canceling the INF Treaty. Exactly. So, and and I, I was there with Undersecretary Andrea Thompson. She's uh, from state. She does arms control verification. And she all but told reporters last week that INF is dead, right? Unless Russia makes some sort of dramatic move, INF is dead. And that could lead to New START being dead as well, which is a whole nother agreement. So we accuse Russia of being a violation of the treaty. They accuse us of being a violation right. of the treaty. And so we just scrapped the whole treaty. That's what right. and, and Trump's plan is. Right. right. And again, and to be I'll be try to be as fair as I can. <laughs> there are you could make the case that there is a reason to get rid of the INF. Right. Because if Russia is just not abiding by it, period, why be in this treaty? But are That's we abiding by it? Yes, actually, we are. As far as we know, all the evidence points to the fact that we are. Uh, now, the issue is, if we're out of it, then we can just build as many intermediate. Right. Which is what we Trump want, wants to do, which is what he wants to do. And a lot of the argument for getting out of this is, well, then we can combat China more effectively. Because China's been working on these missiles. They're not a uh, party to the INF. And so now we're at a disadvantage when it comes to a f- possible future conflict with China. So the whole thing comes out to this being, after all this reporting, that don't worry about dying in a horrible attack yet. But the chances are, even if minutely, increasing. 
And that really has to do with the situation with China, with Russia, with North Korea, and the fact that we are sort of restarting this global arms race. We are. I mean, basically, we are either have already or are about to start a new nuclear arms race. I would say we're in it. Uh, other countries have definitely sort of led us to this point, but we're not blameless in it either. Wow. Wow. Pretty scary. Pay attention to that, folks. And again, let's hope the uh, candidates for 2020 talk about this as among their important issues, of the important issues facing us. Alex, it's great to see you. Thanks so for coming in. Always good to be here. Again, you can follow Alex at VoxVox.com. Jennifer Shutt from Roll Call coming up next here on The Bill Press Show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. He waved the white flag of surrender Friday afternoon. Uh, Donald Trump admitting that um, Democrats were right, and he was wrong. Well, he didn't say that, but in effect he did, agreeing to sign a deal to end the government shutdown, the same deal he first accepted and then rejected way back in December, 35 days of a shutdown, which accomplished absolutely nothing. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is a Monday, January 28th. This is the Bill Press Show. So good to see you today. And thank you for joining us. Hope you had a good weekend. Able to relax, kick back, uh, catch up with family and friends. But so much happened over the weekend, whether it was uh, the arrest of Roger Stone early Friday morning or Donald Trump's big announcement on the shutdown um, Friday afternoon, and then all of the comments and all the reaction that we've heard to both events and other events since. And then Kamala Harris jumping in and becoming the latest Democrat to announce for 2020, while Howard Schultz, the uh, CEO of Starbucks, says, yeah, he's thinking about running too as an independent. The field is already very, very crowded. Uh, from the shutdown on, so much to talk about. Jennifer Shutt joins us from Roll Call to help us through this next uh, half hour with all the, on all the news of the day. Jennifer, nice to see you. Great to see you again. Thanks for coming back in. Uh, and um, so it's me and Jennifer and all of you. And join the show. Join the conversation. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. So uh, we'll jump right in with Jennifer. But first... The headlines is Peter. the full court press. Oh, yes. All the big stories making news. You know, it's uh, award season. It's award season. Last night, the SAG oh, Awards yeah. happened. Yeah. A couple of surprises. In fact, a lot of surprises at the SAG Awards last night. Let's just go I'm down. I'm a member of SAG. What did I do? <laughs> did you vote? I didn't. 
I voted actually. I Did voted you? actually. Yeah. We're members of SAG on, here. We have to vote online. I forgot it. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, Sorry. almost none of the people I voted for actually won. Oh. Uh, so let's just go through some of the okay. winners. Outstanding performance <laughs> by a male actor in a leading role. That went to Rami Malek, who won for Bohemian Rhapsody, his portrayal oh, of wow. Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Female actor in a leading role, Glenn Close for The Wife. For The Wife. Wow. Yeah. Performance by a male actor in a supporting Both were role. Great. Both were great. Supporting role, male, Mahershala Ali, Green Book. Oh, good. Yeah, very good. Uh, female actor in a supporting role, Emily Blunt for A Quiet Place. That was the sort of oh, uh, new-ish that. horror movie that was out there. But the big winner, outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture, A Star is Born, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, Crazy Rich Asians, or the winner, Black Panther, a comic book movie winning outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture. They also won outstanding action performance by a stunt ensemble in a motion picture. So a big night for the Black Panther. I gotta say I saw I saw two movies over the weekend. Okay. Um favorite? Yeah, the favorite. Hated it. Oh no. Hated it. I loved it. I loved that movie. Oh no. Yeah, I really, really? loved it. Uh, and then I saw Black Klansman, which I thought oh, was phenomenal. Excellent movie. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Movie. I, uh, yeah, really. Spike Lee, that's the best he's ever done, I think. I agree. A hundred percent. In fact, it might. Is that a true story? Yeah. Yeah. It's a hundred percent true. Well, and it, it, yeah. it might be up there with my favorite movie in terms of just the, in terms of the, the entire vision of the movie. Uh, my favorite movie of the year. Christian Bale not winning for best yeah, actor for right. Dick Cheney, which I was pretty surprised about. Yeah, right. Uh, we talked about Roger Stone in the last hour of the program, uh, and you talked about his ties to Richard Nixon. He's got that Richard Nixon tattoo. Well, after he was indicted, I have a Bernie Sanders tattoo. Yeah, you, yeah, 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 right on the right on your back, just like Roger Stone. Uh, well, well, you know he loves Richard Nixon. The Nixon Foundation actually put out a statement on Friday distancing themselves from <laughs> Roger Stone. How low can you get? They said this widely circulated characterization of Roger Stone as a Nixon campaign aide or advisor is a gross misstatement. He was 16 years old during the Nixon presidential campaign and 20 years old during the reelection campaign of 1972. Classic Roger Stone to take credit for all of that. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Yep, Donald Trump reopens the government, but then warns that we're going to shut it down again in three weeks if he doesn't get his wall. Blah, blah, blah. The baby's throwing another temper tantrum. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is the Bill Press Show here on a Monday, Monday, January 28th. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, whether you're with us on television, on the radio, or online. Good to have you with us. Everywhere in this great land of ours, everywhere on the planet, indeed, if you're following us online, as we come to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill with all the news of the day, both what's happening here in Washington, particularly all the good stuff over the big stuff, not necessarily all of it good, over the weekend, what's happening around the country and around the globe. We'll tell you what's going on and you tell us what you think about it all. Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. And we welcome uh, to the program, back for her uh, second appearance here in 2019, Jennifer Shutt, who covers uh, Congress and other things for Roll Call. Jennifer, it's good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Everything good? 
A little bit, yeah. The next three weeks are definitely going to be an adventure. Right. So um, what, for 35 days, Donald Trump said, you give me my $5.7 billion or the government's going to remain shut down. That's no, you know, no ifs, no ends, no buts. That was it. It's all or nothing. And then suddenly, Friday, he says, okay, shutdown's over without any money for the wall. What happened? So I think there's two really important things that happened last week, which is we want to, it's really difficult to separate out these two events and try to figure out if one was more important than the other. But there were those two sort of show votes on the Senate floor. Thursday afternoon. Yeah, one for a mostly Republican proposal with the, the immigration changes that Trump put forward. And then one was more... And the money for the wall. Yeah, and one was more of a Democratic proposal. It would have been a stopgap spending bill through fe- early February and I think $14 billion in disaster aid. Um, and we saw a handful of Republicans break for that Democratic bill and vote for that procedural motion. They, of course, did not get the 60 votes they needed to actually advance to formal debate on the bill and a final passage vote. But there were a lot of defections in the Senate Republican caucus, and it sounds like there was a lot of animosity in a lunch last week between Republicans and Mitch McConnell. They're very frustrated on the Senate side about the shutdown continuing. We were really getting to the point in time last week where we could have started to see some real issues affecting constituents who are, of course, voters in 2020, um, especially with food stamps and the SNAP program right. and the air traffic controllers issue, of course, <laughs> came to a head on Friday. Is when, that the second thing? That is the second thing. Back on the first thing for just a sec. Isn't it true that the Democratic plan, if we can prefer to that? I think it's safe Republican to say plan. that. The Democratic plan got more votes than the Republican plan. It did. Even though Mitch McConnell's in charge, it's a Republican-controlled Senate, it was the president's plan. The Democratic plan got more votes than the Republican plan. Well, the plan. Democratic plan was also much simpler than the Republican yeah, plan. Yeah, granted, but yeah. it got more votes. It did. Right, which was a signal, right? It was one of the signals last right. week okay. that things were okay. definitely changing. Those were, of course, also the first votes the Senate held on spending legislation since the shutdown began back on December 22nd. Right. Okay, now to event number two. Which is, I'm sure everyone's on Friday The FAA had to call a ground stop at LaGuardia in New York. That is one of the nation's busiest airports. Um, That airport is already, I've never flown into it, but I heard a lot of stories on Friday. You're lucky. Kind of a mess. (laughs) Even on a good day, it's a mess. It's a total mess. Yeah. So it sounds like, obviously, Donald Trump and Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer are both New Yorkers. Uh, Even if you're not a New Yorker, the odds are you may be flying in or out of that airport at some point in time or know someone who is for business or vacation or something like that. It's a very busy hub. And the thing was that this was not an issue with staff on the ground at LaGuardia. This was an issue with staff at two of the FA at the air traffic controllers um, sort of central locations, (laughs) one in Virginia and one, I think, down south somewhere. I want to say Mississippi, but I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. correct. Um, and so this was a situation where this really could have started having kind of a domino effect in delays at other airports. And of course, once you get a delay, if the plane isn't, you know, if the plane was supposed to fly out of LaGuardia to Miami or something like that, and the plane doesn't arrive and you don't have a plane, it's that's that's whole sort of tumbling effect that can really hamstring the nation's air, air travel really quickly. Right. So the two of those combined um, 
forced a little change of plans. I think so, yes. Right. Also, the solidarity between Schumer and Pelosi on this and the fact that Democrats were <laughs> very clear in the first few weeks that they weren't going to sort of give in to any serious funding for border security. So we started out, whenever it was, in December, um, where the president said, well, well, well first, and this was, the, <laughs> keep coming back to it, the very last day that I was on the air before Christmas, it was that Thursday before Christmas, Okay. when um, the Senate senators had agreed to uh, some money for border security, no money for the wall, and reopening the government. Uh, the White House indicated that was fine with them, they would go along with it. Paul Ryan had said, yeah, that's fine with us, we'll do that in the House. And then Mark Meadows went down to the White House uh, met with Donald Trump. Donald Trump changed his mind and said, no, nope, we're not going to accept that. There's going to be a shutdown. I mean, I'm simplifying, this, but that's basically what happened. Sort of. So there's 12 annual spending bills. Mm -hmm. Five of them were enacted on time by October 1st, the beginning of the fiscal year. And yeah. so we did that continuing resolution, the stopgap temporary spending bill. There were yeah. two that took us would have taken us to December 22nd. And so that week leading up to December 22nd, we were going to do another stopgap spending bill through mm -hmm. February 8th. Right. That's just flat fiscal 2018 spending yeah. levels and policy for these mm -hmm. nine cabinet departments and the what, agencies. What, what would have kept the government open? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the end, but, we got a CR through February 15th instead of February 8th. It's but, so, very basically the same bill, just a week longer. Well, that's the point I was going to make. So at that point, right, the, uh, Donald Trump rejects start, and, and we start to shut down 35 days later. What he agrees to is basically the same plan that he could have had in December, correct? Yeah, and you're getting a conference committee on Homeland, which is the standard process for an appropriations bill. All right, so what did Donald Trump accomplish in 35 days of a government shutdown? I mean, besides showing that Schumer and Pelosi can align very closely on big issues like this, I don't think he particularly accomplished anything for his cause. So he helped the Democrats and without helping his own cause and maybe hurting his own cause. I think that's a safe takeaway. Yeah. And I'm really confused by why he thinks another shutdown would get him what he wants. That's well, the political calculation that I'm kind of struggling with right now is why well, that's he thinks... I was, that's what I was going to ask you next. So now coming out of a disaster, public, I mean, politically, political disaster, which I think it, you have to say it is for him and for the Republican Party and for... Republicans, particularly in the Senate, his language, uh, Peter, let's listen to him. So this is Friday afternoon after announcing the end of the shutdown where he says, okay, this is only to the 15th of February, and here's what's going to happen on the 15th. If we don't get a fair deal from Congress, the government will either shut down on February 15th again, or I will use the powers afforded to me under the laws and the Constitution of the United States to address this emergency. That's the same thing he was saying for 35 days. That statement is also really interesting for a whole lot of reasons. I mean, he's basically promising another shutdown. So once again, yeah. he's kind of taking the credit on himself and on Republicans if there for is the another shutdown. shutdown. Right. Yeah. Which Good is point. something yeah. I feel like they really didn't want him to do in the first place. And right. now he's sort of doing it again, 
which indicates to me when he when there was that December meeting between him and Pelosi and Schumer in the Oval Office and he gave that I'll take the mantle quote, I won't blame you. I mean, yep. that's been just played on repeat throughout the entire shutdown. Yeah. And he essentially I mean, he didn't make re- the statement as bold as that but, December but statement. He reaffirmed it. But he right? did. Yeah. 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 And then the other thing that's really confusing about this national emergency is he's saying that he has the constitutional power to do this, which is clearly a debate even within the administration, because if he was going to declare a national emergency, first of all, an emergency (laughs) is something that you need to respond to quickly. He's been toying around with this idea for more than a month now, I believe. (laughs) Yeah. So what's, you know, in terms of how you respond to an emergency, you typically respond quickly. And so it seems like he's using this more as a political threat. He thinks it's a good, you know, in the classic carrot and stick, he clearly thinks it's a good stick to get Democrats on board, but it hasn't worked so far. I also don't think trying to redirect money from wherever he may pull it from for border barrier construction, I don't really think it's a policy solution that's actually going to get him the money because it's going to be tied up in the courts for significant amount of time. Right. So um, he's just repeating the same threats that he made all that 35 days. Uh, If if we get to the point of February 15 and Donald Trump says another shutdown, will the Republicans stand by him again? I think that remains to be seen. I think there's going to be a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations, especially with moderate Republicans in the Senate. Why would they stay with him again, right? It really depends. What did they get out of the first shutdown? Well, the other thing about his statement in the Rose Garden that you just played that is really interesting is that he's not he's once again not being a clear negotiator. He's not saying I want, you know, X amount of dollars for this many miles of barriers in fiscal 2019, which ends on September 30th. He's saying I want I think the word he used is fair. So he needs to come out and very clearly say what he thinks is fair and what he wants and what he's willing to negotiate on. I think that's one of the problems that the administration had in getting some type of agreement but, throughout the shutdown is that but, there really was a lot of back and forth and a lot of confusion. I mean, even when Vice President Pence came to the Capitol on December yeah. 22nd, that first day of the shutdown, offered Schumer and Pelosi $2.5 billion. They rejected it. A few days later at the White House, Trump was saying he would have never... Uh, he accepted $2.5 billion in the first place. I mean, right. this is the, he really has to decide what he wants, lay it out in black and white, and then figure out where he's willing to give and take a little. But this, the, So the question that, that we've been tossing around here this morning, and Peter and I were talking about in the first half hour, is again, so the Republicans, you know, they, I mean, Donald Trump hung them out to dry for 35 days, right? You know, no, I need... No, it can't be any down payment. It's got to be the $5.7 billion and stick with me, and this is going to be a political winner. And the polls kept dropping, and his numbers kept dropping. And so finally he gets out of a shutdown, and then he turns around and says, okay, I'm going to put you right back in the same soup 15 days from now. I- At that point, these Republicans, and I was surprised, you know, other than I think last time you and I were in, we talked about Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, the moderate group. There were two others. I forget now who they were. Um, Tom Cotton, I think, from North Carolina. There were four. I think se- it was Tillis. Definitely Til- Tom not Tillis. Cotton. No, Tom Tillis, right. Yeah. And uh, Cory Gardner from Colorado. I think so, yeah. I was just surprised more more didn't, didn't you know, bolt, but, but those four did. So if he tries to pull it the same trick again, 
these Republican senators going to line up behind him again? Or are they just going to say, look, enough's enough. You did this once, once, right? We're not going to, we can't support you for another shutdown. I definitely don't think there's any appetite on Capitol Hill for another shutdown, regardless of political party. What about this? Lamar Alexander and Mark Warner have introduced or talked about introducing legislation which would say you can't shut down the government because you don't get your way. Yeah, the automatic CR bill is really interesting. It basically says that if Congress doesn't get all 12 of those annual spending bills done on time, that you get this automatic stopgap spending bill that sort of just continues the previous bill's spending levels in policy. And does not shut down the government. Yeah, I mean, so in one sense, you won't have this political brinksmanship. But one of the things that we've heard from Democrats in the past is that they don't particularly like the idea of automatic continuing resolutions because you've got to remember that we typically increase discretionary spending every year. So one of the reasons that we want these new fiscal 2019 bills and not the continuation from fiscal 2018 is that the spending levels are lower. Um, and sometimes the policy is a bit outdated. For example, I know in the Homeland Security bill, the fiscal 2019 bill that they're trying to get finished right now has new money for a project for a new polar icebreaker for the United States Coast Guard. They, If we st- have an automatic CR, if we never have any yeah. incentive to get this new bill, they never get that new funding for these new programs. But at least the, the, uh, the one of the goals here is to prevent another government, sh- another right. petulant, petty government shutdown over the failure to get what somebody wanted out of Congress. Right. Which it would do that, but also one of Congress's most central responsibilities is finding a way to fund the government. There's not much they have to do constitutionally besides just fund the government. Um, And so I feel like an automatic CR just sort of abdicates that responsibility a little bit in terms of actually negotiating these bills and actually getting their work done on time. So you think what you're saying is uh, certainly it's not automatic that that bill would pass. Oh, I I think that bill would face a a decent struggle getting passed. Even though there's a a distaste for government shutdowns after what we've been through, that going that far would be a tough call for Congress. I think so. Okay. What happens... I'm not clear about this. What actually happens on February 15? Why that date? And is it, does that mean there's going to be another big vote? or? Yeah, so they'll need to be, because we have five of the 12 spending bills are in law, they're fine. That's legislative branch, Department of Defense, VA, military construction, labor, HHS, and education. All of those departments are fine f- until October 1st, which is when the new fiscal year begins. The remaining seven spending bills need to get worked out before and voted on and signed into law before midnight that Friday. Uh-huh. Okay. Or those nine cabinet departments and several agencies, which are just coming out of a 35-day shutdown, will go back into shutdown mode, where some staff is furloughed, some staff is working without a guaranteed paycheck. So um, there are various scenarios there, it seems to me, of the seven. You know, they could let some of them through, but not all of them. They could let uh, the Democrats would like to do all seven, but the Department of Homeland Security on a short leash while they're debating border security. Well, that was one of the proposals that came out during the shutdown. The House passed two separate bills that were six, and one of the Democratic talking points was that Let's, you know, separate out the agriculture Mm -hmm. spending bill that has nothing to do with border security 
and the Interior Environment Spending Bill, which funds national parks, from the Homeland Bill. But one of the things that happened on Friday is that a formal conference committee was established oh, I got it. Okay, for so. the Homeland Security Appropriations Bill. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure on that group of do lawmakers. Do we know who's on this committee? Yeah, we do. The full list is out there. I can't remember exactly who, but it's, you know, you have Senate Appropriations Chairman Richard Shelby and Ranking Member Pat Leahy. They are very good at working out these these issues on a bipartisan basis. You also have House Appropriations Chairwoman Nita Lowy, Democrat of New York, and House Appropriations Ranking Member Kay Granger, Republican of Texas. They have a longstanding relationship. They very much each understand each other and each other's politics. I guess my question, how many are on the committee? Uh, the conference committee, I don't know the exact number. I think it was okay. something like seven from the Senate and a few more from the House, maybe nine from the House, but if those you, numbers aren't exact. What I was wondering, and by the way, uh, uh, if you haven't had a chance to get to do this assessment, I totally understand because it just happened, is when you look at the list of committee members, how many votes are for the wall on that committee? <laughs> so I think the one thing to remember about this conference committee is its appropriators and the people who determine government spending, these are the in-the-weeds policy people. Yeah, right. Um, I really think that if left to their own devices, they can absolutely come to a bipartisan, bicameral agreement on this issue. With no wall. Well, so one of the things that I think is important to remember in this context is that when the Trump administration sent up their fiscal 2019 budget request in February, almost a year ago now, they asked for $1.6 billion for roughly 65 miles of pedestrian fencing in the Rio Grande Valley. The Senate Appropriations Committee, on a bipartisan basis last spring, agreed to $1.6 billion. That was in the Senate's Homeland Security mm-hmm. Appropriations right. Bill. So the Trump administration asked for $1.6 billion last year for fiscal 2019 and got it on a bipartisan basis in the Senate Appropriations Committee. Then there was that June meeting at the White House, one of those big roundtable meetings where the, the cameras stay in and Trump yeah, yeah. makes it reality TV. He asked for $5 billion at that point in time. That was late June, I believe. But he didn't really justify why he wanted that $5 billion. There was no sort of presentation to Capitol Hill appropriators or leadership saying, you know, this is the security threat where we feel like we need this extra $3.4 billion. They never really did that until a few weeks ago when Democrats basically demanded it. Um, and so I really think sort of how we came out of this shutdown with basically the exact same thing we started with, I really feel like if we want some type of bipartisan solution, we may finish this entire adventure the same way we started it, which is $1.6 billion, that original Senate appropriations text. He, listening to you give that account, <laughs> um, looking at what we've seen over the last two years, and particularly in the last few weeks of Mike Pence coming up here and trying to make a deal, and then the president cutting him, and then Jared Kushner coming up and being surprised that more Democrats didn't vote for this thing, apparently, and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it It's hard to escape to me the conclusion that the Trump White House, when it comes to dealing with Congress, is total amateur hour, that they don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. I mean, Mike Pence is obviously a member of Congress for a yeah, while. Yeah. I don't know his CV particularly well. I can't remember if he was on a probes or anything like that. But, but I, mean, I would really hope that Mike Pence understands the basic they, they don't process of the budget and appropriations but, cycle. Again, Kushner they probably doesn't. Seem to be like Keystone cops. They can't get anything done, can't get anything right, but whatever. Um, uh, uh, um, so I want to ask you now, I looked at the president's schedule today. 
It's uh, one lunch meeting. He's having lunch with Mike Pence. Yes. Oh, yeah. that's the saving grade. Whenever there's nothing else to do, he'll have lunch with Mike Pence. He's having well, a lot of lunches. And he'll be lunches. tweeting all day, which will be so much fun. And he'll be tweeting all day, too. But, he must love having lunch with Mike Pence. <laughs> so my point is, I guess, that he has basically put everything else out of sight, right? For the last 35 days, if you look at his schedule, and I get it every day, yeah, he'll have, if, if it's anything on his schedule, other it'll be like lunch with Mike Pence. If there's anything else, it'll be a meeting with this group of pastors about border security or one meeting with, you know, local officials about border. He is basically, this is what he's done, focused entirely on the border for the last 35 days. It looks like he's going to do it for the next 15 days. So my question is, what is Congress going to do? Are they going to be just border, border all the time? Or will they start addressing some other issues like infrastructure, dare I say it, or anything else? Yeah. So I think the House and Senate are probably going to continue their floor schedule similar to what they have been doing. On other issues. Yeah. And this this conference committee, I very much hope, will be left to their own devices. This is a group of lawmakers I talk with pretty regularly. I have a lot of faith that if they are just just put this group of people in a room, just let them do their thing and we will have a bipartisan bicameral agreement. I mean, honestly, like with that group, like Shelby, Leahy, Lowy and Granger, um, and of course, the Homeland Security team. Yeah, they know what they're doing. Like, let's yeah. just let them figure it out and let's vote on it and let's move on. I have so much faith that these people can come to an agreement. Right. Um, so, um, if th- left alone. If left alone. Yeah, that's, the the that's the key. That's the key. Yeah. Key there. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. Of, you know, I, I think. an asterisk on that. I think, given the hardship that these 800,000 federal employees and their families suffered for over 35 days. It's almost inappropriate to talk about winners and losers. Um, But certainly one person, I think, who emerges from this looking stronger than ever has to be Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Wouldn't you agree? I think the one thing that I was watching for as a policy reporter throughout the shutdown is whether or not Trump, through his tweets and statements and things like that, could have driven a wedge between Schumer and Pelosi. The Democrats also are somewhat notorious he for tried. caving. He tried. Um, and so he did. He tried. There was, I think, the point in time, I think it was last week, he said, I can't remember if this was He a invited tweet. Schumer to the White House by himself. Yeah. And Schumer said, no way. Yeah. They very, they very closely stuck together. And yeah. there was a point last week, I think it was a pool spray or something like that, and he was trying to say that Schumer is Pelosi's puppet. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Schumer and Pelosi have been around long enough in the D.C. world, the policymaking world, the politics of all of this to see something that is very clearly sort of like high school bullying almost. And right. I don't think that impacted Schumer at all. But I think that was very clearly what Trump was trying to do. He's trying to separate them and like get someone off to his side. And he clearly wanted to do that with Schumer. And it didn't work. And right. so I think that's going to be a challenge going forward for the next three weeks uh, when these appropriators start to work out a real plan is whether or not Schumer and Pelosi can continue to present that united front. Uh, but you didn't answer my question whether <laughs> uh, at this point the one person who emerges looking stronger than ever out of this has to be Speaker Pelosi. Wouldn't you agree? I think she definitely did a good job staying on message Keeping well with she the, won. well with keeping. I she really don't like a, to do winners and losers in this situation. I can um, tell. But 
I think she kept the House Democrats. This is a very broad group of lawmakers. And one of the things I think that Pelosi definitely reminded everyone of is her ability to keep votes together, with the exception of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was the one Democrat in the House to vote against some of those spending bills. Right, right. That's uh, Yeah, okay, great. One Democrat, right, voted... And 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 she she gave her reasons. It's why. over ice. Yeah, yeah and she right. was hearing a lot of things. Takes from her nothing away from Nancy Pelosi. And and let's remember too that definitely Nancy Pelosi came out on top when it came to the State of the Union. Oh um, yeah, I almost completely forgot about that. So yeah. I mean, Donald yeah, right. Trump says, "I'm coming up there. I'm coming anyhow. I don't care what you say." And she said, "Well, you're guess what? You're not invited, dude." So he yeah. had to turn around and say. All right, you're right. I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I like. I agree. I mean, the winners, the winners and losers game in a situation like this no, is a little weird. However, right. however, Donald Trump is zero and two. Exactly. If you're keeping score, it's Nancy Pelosi two, Donald Trump, <laughs> Donald Trump zero, and now. You've got the next 15 days. You thought it was over? Uh-uh. You're just getting into it, Jennifer. So I hope it's just the next 15 days because that <laughs> means they've reached an agreement and it's law. And By we can way. move on to fiscal 2020, which I'm super excited about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next time you come in, we'll talk about that. Hopefully, no more yeah. shutdown. Thanks, Jennifer, for coming in. Yeah. From Roll Call at rollcall.com. Somebody else lurking around the halls of the Congress, Matt Fuller from HuffPost. Uh, we'll hear from him coming up next. Quick break, and we'll be right back. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. And here we are on a Monday, January 28. Hello, folks. Great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining us on the radio on the great WCPT, hello Chicago, and uh, joining us on television on Free Speech TV, say hello to Matt Fuller from HuffPost, covers the Congress for HuffPost. Matt, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Um, we got uh, lots and lots to talk about, Let me, but a couple things we haven't gotten to yet, if you uh, will indulge us. Uh, we now have a, a new presidential candidate every day a new candidate i mean just about right um <laughs> she said she started out on a book tour didn't last very long and then kamala harris last week on good morning america said announced on martin luther king day uh, that she was going to run and yesterday was the official kickoff out in oakland big crowd twenty thousand people huh it was yeah. a huge crowd huge crowd they really it looked it looked presidential, right? It was a, they did. A First very of all, good I, th- job. I thought you were about to say Howard Schultz. <laughs> oh, we're going to get to that. <laughs> we'll get there. We're we'll get, get there. That. Yeah. Okay, I don't want to spoil anything. No, no, no. But, but here is uh, Senator Harris. Um, I think we have that. Yeah, of course we do. Uh, we can restore America's moral leadership on this planet. She's, uh, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand's out there, Elizabeth Warren's out there, uh, Julian Castro, John Delaney, Richard Ojeda, right? He's oh, out. no, he's, he dropped out. He he's dropped out. out. He yeah. dropped out. I forgot out. to do that story yeah. earlier. Oh, no. I didn't have time. Yeah. He is out of the race. I'm sorry, Bill. Oh, my. You're going to have to. My candidate. <laughs> the, the Richard Ojeda tattoo you have between your shoulder oh, yes. blades oh, yeah. no. is that, now. No, that's the Bernie Sanders Oh, that's the tattoo. Bernie one. Okay, right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Bernie's expected to get any moment. But of all of them so far... You know, Kamala Harris has made the biggest splash, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been saying, um, you know, she might have had the best rollout thus far. Yeah, Certainly, yeah. she, you know, she had that her on that no initial doubt. day, that $1.5 million day. 
Right. Um, and then, you know, there's, it seems like there's a lot of energy behind her. But I think a lot of the, you know, the Democrats are talking about a lot of the similar things. So it's going to come down to some of the style. And obviously it's going to come down to delegates. And <clears throat> Harris has a natural advantage there if you're, you know, with California's primary moved up. And uh, there's certainly a lot of delegates up for grabs as you, you know. Right. Yeah. You know, that game a lot better than I do. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think she seems like uh, right now, if you're putting money down, I think she's probably the front runner, right? Uh, I would say so right now, um, unless it's Elizabeth Warren, of those who are in. And it's interesting that Elizabeth Warren is taking sort of a different approach. She's getting good crowds, not that big, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's presenting herself as the nerd candidate. Yeah. Right? She gets yeah. into serious policy discussions, and, and that's going to separate her. But you know, and but let's remember, that's exactly what Bernie Sanders did, right? His campaign speeches were going for an hour, details yeah. about single payer and all of that stuff, and people loved it, yeah. right? So she's sort of following that track as, as well. Yeah. Um, and then there is Howard Schultz from Starbucks, <laughs> who um, said last night, told uh, Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes. I am seriously thinking of running for president. I will run as a centrist independent outside of the two-party system. Whoa, outside of the two-party system. This is what we need, an independent to, yeah, I mean, to I, shake things up. It, it, realistic? It, no, I mean... <laughs> yeah, right. And <laughs> Thank you. It's not, it, it's not realistic. It's, um, it's interesting because I think the appetite immediately was everyone like, please, no, God, like, like Howard, no, we don't, you know... Um, for Democrats, it's like this guy is just going to be a spoiler candidate, and I and I and I've seen this point made a, a few times that we don't really know what the effect would be. Uh, certainly, he seemed to be talking about like debt and whatnot, but um, everyone sort of the assumption is, hey, Trump is a super uh, weak candidate. Um, the Democrats are probably going to put up someone decent. Um, you know, when you have a president who's hovering around forty percent favorability, it's like. You know, this shouldn't be that difficult, and, and you know, knock on wood with the 2016 and yeah, all the right. caveats. But uh, a, a third-party candidate with a ton of money, you know, he's a billionaire. Uh, it's just not what people are crying out for at this point. The, you know, the the other thing I, I think is like, look, why are you running for president? I think that's what everybody has to be able to answer, right? And I think that there are, look, there there are three women in the Democratic primary right now with the possibility of even more getting mm-hmm. in. Oh. Uh, you have uh, people who are running on income inequality. You're running, people are running on racial equality. You're all t- types of issues. What is he running on? And who, what is his, what is his base? What are his constituents? I mean, what, yeah. who is out there saying like, I don't I, like Bernie, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, any of these other people that are going to be here. But I love Howard Schultz. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I don't see it, but I, I, I do see the the danger, too, of uh, sucking votes from whoever the Democratic candidate is. I think of Ross Perot. I sure, mean, sure. Did, and maybe, maybe it worked of, out for Clinton. I uh, think of Ralph Nader. Yeah, 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 that, uh, a bigger or, issue. Hello, right. Uh, and I also see, though, the absolute impossibility for an independent candidate of getting on the ballot in all 50 states. It's never been done. Ross, Ross Perot didn't. Even though yeah. Ross Perot got 17% of the vote, which was huge, he wasn't on yeah. the ballot in all 50 Howard states. Howard Schultz is going to be in, in all, all states and, and all counties and districts. And I, I don't know that he has that much money. I mean, the organization. It would take. This, I'd love to see a, th- a viable <coughs> third party. I always have said that. But the system is rigged against it. And uh, it would be so expensive. It's so difficult to get on the ballot. There are probably, I don't know the rules, all of them. I, 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 
I haven't done the homework here, but I, I'll bet you there are states right now you're too late to get on the battle for 2020. I'll bet yeah. you some states it's it's true. Yeah, so. I, I think he's going to find out really quickly that there's just no appetite for this. And, um, you know, I don't think he wants to ruin the Starbucks name here. I think that you you potentially sour a lot of people on Howard Schultz and Starbucks. Right. <laughs> uh, if you, you know, went this this route, which is it just seems odd. There's no there's no issue that he's talking about that people are again, crying out for. I think fiscal conservatism is largely dead at this point. That seems like his issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so where are all yeah. these? I mean, there might be yeah. these these disaffected Republicans somewhere that are like, you know, shaking their fists at the sky. But uh, I, I don't see who's going to vote for Howard Schultz. So I got an email from a friend of mine last night after 60 Minutes, and he said he was thinking of starting a petition to boycott Starbucks uh, <laughs> over Howard Schultz. <laughs> and my response to him was, one more reason to boycott Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, there's probably there are probably millions of Americans who love burnt coffee with tons of sugar dumped into it. Maybe they'll vote for Howard Schultz. I don't know. I don't As know. a Starbucks drinker, I feel obliged oh. to speak up here. I know. Well, Ooh, you know, uh, it's it, a big yikes for me. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, uh, it is a successful business model. You have to get on that. 100. Yeah. I, I, yeah. you know, it, it's 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 reliable for me. There, it's okay. it's there. All right. So, uh, again, we'll get some serious stuff soon here, but uh, were you uh, at the uh, Alfalfa Club dinner? Saturday no, night? no. Uh, yeah, miss my invitation uh, didn't, didn't quite get, get to me. Mine didn't either, but I, I just a good little shout-out for I thought John Kerry really um, carried the night. I wasn't there either, mm-hmm. but just reading his, his speech, you know, you're, you're a His little, zingers. His zingers were pretty good. He said this was the, uh, the only speech, only speech, in Washington this last week that was not canceled by Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> that's, that's how he started. Pretty good. I thought that was pretty good. He also said, uh, um, I watched the Oscar nominations a few a few days ago, and afterwards every single actor said what a great honor it was just to be nominated. Trust me, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Those are pretty good. That's the right tone, too. That's the right tone, right. Ah, uh, Roger Stone. He got Terry good zingers in about Roger Stone. You like this, Peter? Roger Stone, here's John Kerry, has always been controversial. I remember when he got caught advertising for sex in bondage, for sex in bondage and swingers magazines. That's true, by the way. So, yes, that is true. So, yesterday morning wasn't the first time he started his day in handcuffs. (laughs) 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 Ka-ching. Let's not go too much deeper into that story because there's a lot there. Uh, But uh, this one, like you said, uh, Kerry, who was the outgoing president of the Alfalfa Club, turning it over to a real jokester, Mitt Romney. Oh, oh man. God, yeah. We'll see how that turns out next year. Uh, so Kerry said, I've learned so much over the past year as your president. I learned that I'm at an awkward age, too old to run a marathon, too young to be in the House Democratic leadership. <laughs> uh, and I learned that, I like that this, <laughs> at an average alfalfa dinner, this crowd goes through 70 cases of beer, 300 bottles of wine, and over 2,600 mixed drinks. Or, as Brett Kavanaugh calls it, a quiet weekend. They <laughs> 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 got some real good singers in yeah, there. Yeah, those are great. Yeah. yeah. Good joke writer. Something. Yeah, somewhere. So. <laughs> uh, it's nice that this one, I can still laugh at this madness that's going on. Um, that's all I do at this madness. <laughs> That's um, all you can do at this point. How bad did Donald Trump lose in the shutdown? 
I mean, it's a total and complete loss. I mean, I I don't even get his like if he, if you're you know arguing from his position, wouldn't you do the national emergency declaration? I mean, he might still end up doing it, but uh, it, it looks even worse at this point, right? He's gonna. It's another three weeks, and I think he undermines his own case, which is inevitably going to get tied up in the courts here if he does do this. Well, th- that's actually what I wanted to ask you, Matt. It's yeah. like, why not just do the national uh, emergency declaration now? Yeah, because as Jennifer pointed out in the last half hour, the word emergency indicates does it, does it in, means emergency it does or? imply some kind of <laughs> crisis. Yeah, time. Yeah, I'm considering deadline, it right? and weighing. We'll see if they work with me. You're right. It it it, it belies his whole point that. Uh, it's not an emergency. An emergency. It, it, this is just, and I also think that um, from a core perspective, it's it's very explicit that Congress did not appropriate funds to this purpose, um, and that he's just working around that. Now, I, and I understand the statute uh, is is kind of weird. It, it it does give him quite a bit of authority, but it also it's clear that it must be a national emergency, um, and this is clearly just a trumped up political point at this point, and he's, you know toying with the idea and, and <clears throat> so it, it made no sense to me that he would go this route and, and complete capitulation very suddenly uh you know just all right well i guess it's over and i lost and right. it's a complete total loss so what we've been pondering and trying to figure out uh, is what republicans what, what the republican senators do going forward I mean, he hung them out to drive after basically. voting for a clean CR and then voting right. against his clean CR and then the yeah. next day voting for a clean CR. Yes. Yeah, right. And he not the hypocrisy so he, matters anymore, but yeah. But he hung them out to drive for thirty-five totally. days. Yeah, and then he turns around and says, "In fifteen days, I'm going to do it all over again." Right. I and, might shut it down again. Right. 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 Now we've heard. We know <clears throat> that the Republican proposal, the Democratic proposal, got more votes than the Republican plan in the Senate. There, but that was just like six. But I, I read somewhere, maybe you can confirm, that Mitch McConnell told Trump, if we have another vote, there'll be 70 votes for that Democratic yeah, and I think plan. That's tr- and I think that's true. And I think the reason, and, and you know, Mitch McConnell and a lot of Republicans would deny this, but um, so the Democratic proposal, which was a clean CR, got 52 votes and, as you said, six Republicans. Yeah. Uh, and then the $5.7 billion for the wall and the three years of DACA and whatnot – that got 50 votes, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. uh, only Joe Manchin crossed over. It was all Republicans and, right. and Joe Manchin. And I think McConnell is smart enough to sort of – I think that vote, the side-by-side nature of it was to demonstrate to, to Trump and to the White House that, hey, I'm I'm bleeding guys. And right, and I, and I do believe that that it, the next vote's going to be 70. Uh, and I, it doesn't make sense to me that guys like Tom Tillis, who, you know, up for re-election in North Carolina, voted against that clean CR. I think that's uh, arming Democrats with quite a bit of ammunition, but – um, <clears throat> I I think McConnell did that on purpose. I really do think he he was trying to demonstrate that this is a problem. Uh, you need to address this immediately because uh, you know it's not going our way. What was crazy to me was that how the White House uh, just <clears throat> you know after that vote it was like all right uh, McConnell and Schumer are talking and they're going to negotiate something, and then immediately Sarah Huckabee Sanders comes out with a a, a statement to the effect of. You know, anything without border wall money is a non-starter. Well, it's like, well, then what are we talking about? There's right. no negotiation yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you've totally missed the point, right? If, if it were maybe a flipped vote, uh, if, if there were six d- Democrats supporting your wall and there's only one Republican v- voting for a clean CR, you know, you might have a point. But it, well, you just demonstrated that, y- you know, you're playing, you're bluffing here. You have no hand. And um, it w- I think it's been clear. Democrats were pretty smart on this, that. Uh, as long as they stick together and say we're not negotiating on wall money, there's no wall money. 
they're going to win that that fight every time. Well, so I want to get your take on the question that I asked Jennifer Schutt from Roll Call in the, in, uh, in the previous half hour, which is if you look at what the Trump administration was able to get done in Congress, um, when the Republicans were in control and and now even with the Democrats in control of the House, I mean, in both cases, it seems to me they really come across the White House dealing with Congress as a bunch of amateurs. Well, they are amateurs. I mean, uh, uh, there's there's no they they I don't think they understand Congress in the um, the way that you have to. Mike if Pence you're gonna... is a former <clears throat> member of Congress. You would think that. Yeah, I mean, uh, anyone who's really dealt with Mike Pence, it's a lot of you know Donald Trump's broad shoulders. Like it's just the same. Yes, uh, there it is. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah, Donald Trump. He's making uh, America great uh, again. He is restoring honor to this presidency. Uh, Fuller knows when to play the hits. That's yeah, what I appreciate. Yeah, <laughs> I just Pence. Uh, I I don't think of him as this master tactician. And I, I you know. Well, then how about the people like was it Mark Short? Was this guy? I mean, Mark, well, Short's gone. I mean, Short's it's gone. really it, it was up to it's up to Kushner. And the thing the thing that <laughs> oh, we've great. seen, right, right, time and again Isn't is he kind of busy bringing peace to the Middle East, or whenever you know, go down the list of his twenty different items that he's working on that he's mm-hmm. always unsuccessful with. But they they never accurately predict political fallout from things. The the other thing about this was, you know, what the White House uh, when they released this plan on Saturday. Uh, they thought they were going to get Democratic votes. They thought, oh, that the yeah. pressure would be, you know, so immense, and and they were wrong. It wasn't. It, it really wasn't that tough of a vote, unless you're Joe Manchin. Um, I, time and again, they they I think they do sort of understand the dynamics with Republicans. And I think Trump is not bad with this. He understands where the Freedom Caucus at. He understands where moderates, moderate conservatives, Republicans, you know, those guys, and and sort of where the leadership. He he understands that dynamic. But that's only good if you're just passing bill with Republican votes. When you have Democrats in the in the in the fray, you know this expectation that Nancy Pelosi was going to fold or that you know Democrats would give him maybe two or three billion, like it just it was just a fantasy land, and he never understood that. And there was no one at the White House who was willing to tell him. And I think there must be people there who understand you're not going to win this. You're not. We there never may win have been at one time. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but who is it today? <clears throat> Mick Mulvaney? No. I mean, well, I, no, I have to I imagine don't. Mick Mulvaney knows that they weren't going to win that. It's for me, it's just a question of because, um, and I, I, you know, I dealt with Mick Mulvaney quite a bit. I think he's a very smart guy. Uh, he's just maybe someone who was willing to make some ethic, ethical compromises. And I, I think the it really is like the you know the emperor has no clothes. No one's willing to tell him that this isn't going to work. The strategy of you know trying to bend Democrats to your will that's not going to work. Um, and he there's a learning curve there. Uh, it's just amazing that we're two years in and there seems to be no real lesson that they've learned from this. All right. So, again, I'm a Republican senator. I've been through this. I didn't like it, but I kind of went along with it because, you know, he's my president. Bump on Mitch McConnell's my leader and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, it's over and I'm really happy. And then I hear, here's the president. Let's hear him again in the Rose Garden. Uh, after he makes the announcement that we're reopening the government, which he's proud to do, mm-hmm. he was forced to do. Thank, then he says, know, thank God for, it, for Trump. Yeah, I know. In 15 <laughs> days, here's what's going to happen. So again, if I'm we a- don't, if we don't get a fair deal from Congress, the government will either shut down on February 15th again, or I will use the powers afforded to me under the laws <laughs> and the Constitution of the United States to address this emergency. So again, I'm this Republican senator, and I look and I say, oh my God, nothing right. has changed. Learn, learn, learn nothing. nothing. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it, 
for me, you hear that, and I, I just hear him saying, <clears throat> I'll declare a national emergency. And if I'm a Republican, I, I have to, like, why wouldn't you give me that cover? And I, and I get there's, a, there's, a, there's really good arguments for, you know, executive overreach. And if you're a Republican, yeah. you're probably yeah. very uncomfortable with a lot of that. Um, I do happen to know, having talked to so many Republicans at this point, I think we talked to over 30 Republicans about uh, de- declaring a national emergency. There really isn't much, uh, you know, hesitation there. A lot of them were like, well, it is a national emergency. And, you know, the, the president has this authority. Um, and, you know, it, it's at least it, it's a muddy uh, legal yeah. argument. So I don't get right. why Trump wouldn't just declare the national emergency. I always thought that was the cleanest way out of this. And um, it, it just made no sense to me that he would he would capitulate and it'd be a total cave. You know, he he reopens government for free yeah. and then also hangs this thing out. It's a very bizarre situation for a lot of these Republicans. By the way, it's kind of like, beca- I, I think maybe it's uh, long, long ago became sort of like Peter and the Wolf. But uh, among many tweets over the weekend was at least one tweet saying the biggest caravan ever is mm-hmm. coming now. That's why it really is an emergency. There are 8,000 in this one and the others. We managed to escape. Yeah. Right. Well, whatever happened to those caravans? Whatever <laughs> happened to those caravans? And also, I saw a story of the weekend where Mexico has now said, "Hey, stay here. You know, we'll make it easier for you to get a job here. You know, you can help our economy." And so, you know, the, the president saying also that Mexico was not doing anything at all to mm-hmm. dissuade these people from coming to the United States is no longer true. Now that the government officially has. Now, so I want to ask you about um, Speaker Pelosi. Um, certainly emerges as, uh, if, if anybody had any doubts about her leadership abilities and how tough she is. And what is it, I was talking to some friends about this the other night. If you notice, Trump has not really attacked her. Yeah. He's attacked every one of his other opponents, but viciously, you know. He's not given her a nickname, mm-hmm. except- Or Nancy. Nancy, Yes. <laughs> Or as uh, I call her, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi, oh, or as I call her, Nancy. Yeah, that's her name. <laughs> um, but he, he seems buffaloed by her. What you know, is it? I, I think the one thing I will say about Trump is he understands power. And he, I mean, he's kind of like a, a bully, right? And on the playground, he, you know, he, he resp- and, and, and this is true of the Republican Party, too. It is sort of a biker gang mentality. Uh, if, you know, if you get beat up, that's the, that's the leader now. Um, and I, I think he he does respect the fact that she is able to keep her entire caucus in line. He respects the fact that she's tough. Um, you know, I think he, you know, I don't think there's much of a policy consideration with Trump. Really, I think it's all personality and all um, Oh, gee, power. I'm not sure, Matt. I don't know. I think he really <laughs> understands how the government works. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he really dives into the policy every night and, yeah. uh, you know, he's, yeah. he's reading his Thucydides. His and books. <laughs> right, right. He's really getting his on his history lessons and whatnot. <laughs> And uh, no, <laughs> it's an obvious point, but I, I yeah, I, I think he respects the fact that she's strong, and uh, he also knows that the these next two years, he's you know nothing is going to get done without a sign up from Nancy Pelosi. Um, I, I don't think there's much hope from any Republican. There's any real legislation coming, uh, but if you if you were hopeful for some sort of deal, and there has to be there has to be some sort of deal on at least the appropriation side, it has to have Nancy Pelosi sign off on it. Uh, if you wanted the infrastructure bill, that's going to be not with Kevin McCarthy. That's going to be with Nancy Pelosi. And, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans in the Senate would just have to sort of uh, swallow it, which we've we've seen that they're able to do. So uh, <clears throat> maybe this is, you know, his instincts that he can't burn bridges with her. Uh, he needs Nancy Pelosi. But the other thing is that 
if you know if if he he keeps on trying to hit her in the mouth you know oh, oh these little stunts like i'm going to cancel your you know your uh codel to afghanistan or yeah, yeah. or oh actually i am going to come to the state of the union and it's so easy for pelosi no you're not and then <laughs> oh okay i guess i'm not I, I think he. <laughs> I know, that's exactly literally the way it was that. No, it was right, yeah. right. Uh, I mean, he, he, he. If there's anything I could say, he he respects power, and Nancy Pelosi very clearly has power. Right. To be my my easiest answer. But you mentioned Kevin McCarthy, boy. Um, I, I thought we might see a l- someone with a little more backbone than Paul Ryan, but his response to oh my Kevin, <laughs> <laughs> my Kevin, yeah, my Kevin, yeah. Right. His response to Trump's thing was, well, he did everything he could, you know. He yeah, did the it, best he could. God bless his soul. It's right. amazing how how no one was able, was willing to blame Trump for this, and they're all willing to give him praise for for opening the government after, yeah. you know, thirty five days of him not signing the bill that he signed. Oh man, hey Matt, it's so good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in again. Uh, here from HuffPost, uh, follow him at HuffPost.com. A whole new week. Who knows what's going to happen this week, folks. Make the most of this Monday and come back and see us tomorrow. We'll be looking for you. This is The Bill Press Show.